final sacrifice for our sins and that you invite us into your very presence, that you want us to draw near to you where we can be changed and transformed and experience your real life. We appreciate that. And today we want to learn more about this aspect of Jesus' ascension into heaven. We ask that you would teach us about this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Page 654 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And we're at this section where I'm entitling the essential reason for the ascension. Okay, when Jesus ascended up into heaven. How many of you have heard of the Apostles' Creed? Okay, yeah, most people, right? Okay, uh, I want to read you the Apostles' Creed. It is a statement of basic, essential Christianity. Although I'm going to read the earliest version of the Apostles' Creed that we have. Most of you are familiar with, I think it's the ninth century version of the Apostles' Creed, where they added a few things later on in the Middle Ages and so forth. I'm going to read you the earliest form, but it's basically the same. So here it is. This is from the Creed's. Christendom. Uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From there he shall go, come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit the holy church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. And this is a basic statement of essential Christianity. Did you notice anything missing? Hmm? Yeah, it did, twice. Yeah. Do you remember, it didn't mention going down into hell, right, that part? Because Jesus didn't go to hell, so that's, you know, that's not in there in the original and shouldn't be in there because he didn't do it, okay? So that's, that wasn't in there. Uh, the, the Holy Catholic Church, the Catholic isn't in the original, though that's not anything bad. Catholic just means universal church, so there's nothing wrong with putting that word in there, but that wasn't in the original, okay? So, but, but notice here, one thing was in there, and that's the ascension, Okay, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. That part, you remember the song we sang? We believe in God, right? That's a great song, right? That's like the creed. It was missing. I just noticed this. Where's the error? It's missing the ascension. Okay, because sometimes we don't think about this part. We don't think about the ascension as essential to Christianity but it, we're going to see in the book of Hebrews that, they really be, that the author really believed this essential quality. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it, it tells us what we need, not what we think we need, and that Jesus fulfills that need. We all have certain uh, felt needs that may or may not be real needs. 
The Bible deals with the real needs, and this, and obviously God would know what he's talking about. So we want to talk about this and look at this, and one of those needs, we needed Jesus to ascend up into heaven, and that's what our passage is all about. Let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Now he starts this passage out, now the main point of what is being said is this. So he says, I want to make, tell you the main point of what is being said. So he's clearly referring to what he already said, right? Which we've been looking at in chapter 7 and prior to that. So the main point of this idea that he's been talking about of Jesus being our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He says the main point of that is this, and now he's going to talk about that main point and why it was so necessary, okay? But do you remember back in chapter 5, verse 11? Like, yeah, Larry, I remember that distinctly. It was a few months ago, but yeah, I, 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 okay, well, let's go ahead, turn back there just to refresh your memory. Chapter 5, verse 11, this is where the author is, he's been talking in chapter 5 about Jesus coming as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, but then he stops. In verse 11, he rebukes them. Look at what he says. He says, we have a great deal to say about this, about Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. So that's kind of a rebuke, isn't it? He's not saying it's difficult to explain because it's way over our heads. He says it's difficult to explain because you don't want to listen. You're too lazy. You just want fluff. Just give me some popcorn and that'll be good enough, okay? And he's saying, no, I want to give you the meat, the real good understanding and how important this is, but they weren't ready yet. So he's rebuking them here. And then we see in chapter 6, he actually gives the strongest warning in the book. And then he proceeds in chapter 7 to talk about Jesus being our great high priest in the order of of Melchizedek, okay? Now, this might seem like archaic stuff that no longer affects us today in our modernist and postmodernist worlds, but the exact opposite is true. Jesus' ascension to heaven as our high priest was crucial for our salvation, to neglect this stuff can seriously, adversely affect our life. So let's dig in and see what he says about 
Jesus ascending to heaven. In verses 1 through 3, he starts out by talking about how the true tabernacle is in heaven. Okay, so, you know, he, as the high priest, he sits down at the right, he ascends up to heaven, sits down at the right hand of, of God and ministers, it says, verse 2, in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. That God had already had the true tabernacle up in heaven, okay? So the true tabernacle is in heaven. Now, I have a question to ask you, okay? Where is heaven, you know, some people say, well, it's uh, up there, right? Well, if it's up there from here, then what about the guys in Australia? <laughs> right? They're pointing in the exact opposite spot, aren't they? Okay. And it's because our brains, we got to grasp this idea. God, when he created everything, he created both a spiritual realm and a physical realm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created a spiritual and a physical realm. He created us as physical and spiritual beings. So there is a physical realm and there is a spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is not in the physical realm. So it's not up there or whatever. You know, is it right next to us? It could be, you know. So it's not in the physical. I know it kind of hurts the brain a little bit, but... We need to recognize this. There's a spiritual and a physical aspect of who we are and and of what God has created. Jesus in his ascension, he ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, okay? So he sits down at God's right hand. Now, God doesn't even have a right hand, okay? Right? He doesn't have a body. He is spirit. He is everywhere all the time and beyond, okay? So he is uh, omnipresent. So the, the authors of the Bible use these kind of analogies as what, what we call anthropomorphisms. You, you all like to learn new terms? Okay. Well, there's a good one for you. Anthropomorphism, that's the use of human language to help us grasp just a little bit the ungraspable God who's an infinite in being, okay? So, so to, but to sit at his right hand didn't mean he was actually sitting on his hand or anything like that. It meant that he was equal with God, that he was being honored in the same way as God the Father. But notice he's sitting. He sat because his work was completed, We saw that last week, how Jesus' death on the cross was once for all, okay? So he doesn't keep going back and forth like the priests uh, on the earth did. They kept on going back for more and more sacrifices because they didn't actually work. His sacrifice, once for all, really did work, and he sat at the right hand of God. In this earthly sanctuary, there were no seats, They couldn't sit down because the priests were never finished with their work. But Jesus, we see, sat at God's right hand. And specifically says, sat at the majesty in heaven. It's the right hand. Now that's interesting. So God is called the majesty in heaven, and and he's referring to God's sovereignty there. To be sovereign means to be a king. Okay, that's a sovereign is a king. He is the king ruling over the universe, okay? So he is there. He is king, 
and you are not king. That's the point we must get. He is the majesty. We are not. We typically, because we live in a democracy or republic, you know, we, we think, you know, okay, I want to have a say in this. I want to be able to vote. I don't, if I don't like that, then I, then I can scrap it or whatever. That's not true in God's kingdom, okay? You can think that all you want, but you're going to run into a big brick wall when you try it that way. God is sovereign over the universe. That's all there is to it. Okay, and Jesus is sitting at the majesty of heaven. We want to get in on his plan, his kingdom, and help advance his kingdom, helping people enter into his kingdom. That's what he calls us to. So he is now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And sitting, as I said, at God's right hand makes Jesus equal with God. Uh, in the ancient times, the king would gather around his nobles around him, but to sit at his right hand was recognizing someone with equal authority. And so this really is recognizing Jesus as equal with God the Father. Uh, I don't have time to read through all of these verses that I have up there, but I do want you to turn to John chapter 5, verses 17 through 23. In this passage, we see that Jesus actually makes himself equal to God. There is some form of uh, obedience to the Father and so forth, but but also an equality with God the Father. Look at what it says here. And Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and this is what uh, he says in verse 17. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, what's fascinating about this passage, what it's saying here is, is that Jesus was actually making himself equal to God. Some people think, no, that's what the Pharisees thought. The Pharisees thought he was making himself equal to God, and that's why they killed him. But that's not what the passage says. It doesn't say, and the Pharisees thought. It says he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. He was. Now, he goes on to say, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does, does these things. So their roles and Jesus as the son is following the father's lead. But he goes on, For the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the son. The son, Jesus, is the one who's going to do the judgment at the end of time. And then he says this, verse 23, so that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is going to receive 
the same equal honor as the Father receives. In fact, he says, if you don't honor him as equal to the Father, then you don't honor the Father. And so this is making it clear that we must believe that Jesus is God and that he deserves just equal honor as the Father. Otherwise, we do not honor God at all, according to this passage. Jesus is equal to God. In John 17, verse 5, in Jesus' prayer, he actually says to, to the Father, he's praying to the Father, he says, he says, glorify me with the glory we shared at the beginning. Okay? So he's, he's calling the Father to glorify him. Now we know in Isaiah 42, 8, the Bible says that God will not share his glory with anyone else. So you're like, how, how does this work? God, the fa- who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, share glory with one another, but that God, the true God, will not share his glory with anyone else. Jesus is God. That's what we see. That's what we see in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Begins by saying how Jesus is in the form of God. He is God, but then he is Uh, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and he died on the cross for our sins and then God exalted him up to this place of exaltation to receive that honor and glory. And here we see this culmination in our passage when he ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Thus he is making himself equal to God the Father. Uh, So Jesus sat at God's right hand, and then Jesus ministers at the true tabernacle. Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. So here we see that he ministers at the true tabernacle. The tabernacle, as we'll see a little bit later, that's on the earth, that's just a model of the true tabernacle that God has. So Jesus, when he ascended up to heaven, he offered the sacrifice of himself when he shed the blood on the cross, and he offered that in the true tabernacle that the Lord made. Jesus ministers at the true tabernacle. Now, in verse 3, it says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Jesus actually encompasses all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. That phrase, gifts and sacrifices, that is a way of referring to all of the ceremonial sacrifices and worship aspects found under the Old Covenant. Okay? If you read Leviticus, if you're, you, know, you can't sleep at night and you really need something powerful to read, you pick up the book of Leviticus, right? And you're reading through that, and it talks about all those different kinds of sacrifices. Well, those are known as the gifts and sacrifices to, sh- to refer to all of that kind of worship. Jesus encompasses all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and especially 
the Day of Atonement sacrifice. In the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest enters the very Holy of Holies, God's presence, brings the sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of the people for that year. Well, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, no longer needing any more sacrifices. So that's why the ascension is so essential. He ascends up to heaven, taking the blood that he shed on the cross, offering it in the true tabernacle, bringing about the forgiveness of our sins. This is what Jesus did at the ascension. Now, he goes on in verses 4 and 5, and we see the tabernacle on earth is a copy and a shadow. Look what he says. Now, if he, were on, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Okay, so here we see that the earthly tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of the true tabernacle in heaven. Okay, earthly tabernacle, it's just a model. Now, that's a quote from a movie, Monty Python. Anybody catch it? No? Okay. Anyway, okay, I digress. Okay, it's just a model of the true tabernacle in heaven. Now, a couple things that are interesting about this. First of all, the date of the book of Hebrews is there's a, an indication from this passage of when the author of Hebrews wrote the book of Hebrews, and I'm suggesting that it had to have been written before 70 A.D. Because look at what he says in verse 4. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. This is in present tense. So at that time of writing, the priests at that time were offering sacrifices. We know in 70 A.D. the Romans destroyed the temple and, and thus, the Jews could no longer offer sacrifices because they were commanded by the Old Testament law that they could only offer sacrifices in the temple. Once the temple is destroyed, they, they no longer offered sacrifices. So we know this must have been written before the temple was destroyed because they were at that time offering sacrifices. Also, by the way, if he was writing after 70 A.D. If he was writing when the temple had already been destroyed, he would have mentioned it. Because his whole point here is that the, there's no longer a need for the tabernacle or temple because Jesus was the final sacrifice. That's his whole point. Can't you imagine that if the temple was already destroyed, he would, say, he would have said, and by the way, the temple was destroyed, thus we don't need it anymore. He would have said that, right? But he didn't say that because it hadn't been destroyed yet. So it was written before 70 AD, which means it was written during the lifetime of the original disciples. No time to, to you know, myth and legend to be created, you know, over years and centuries or whatever. This stuff, this is what they believed. This is what took place. And so we see... Uh, the date of the book of Hebrews, sometime before 70 A.D. And the, also, the earthly tabernacle was only temporary. When he says shadow, he means 
temporary. It was only for a time until the real thing was brought about, okay? Look, at, we see this word, shadow, uh, skia, uh, in, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Turn there with me. And uh, here, he says, therefore, because of the death of Jesus on the cross, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Once the substance is there, the shadow is no longer necessary. And so we see that that whole Old Testament worship was only for a time. Now, we've already seen that as well in the book of Hebrews, that the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, was temporary. It was only for a time. It was a shadow. And that's what he's saying here, that the the temple, the tabernacle, it was a shadow, which refers to it as being temporary. He says here, don't let anyone judge you in regard to these things. So you're not allowed to let anybody judge you about uh, the Sabbath days and foods and drinks. Because of this temporal nature, we are no longer under the ceremonial and dietary laws. We are no longer under the Sabbath and festival laws. Those are a shadow, it says, and now that Jesus has come as the substance, those things are no longer necessary. And as we see, uh, skipping up to verse 13 of chapter 8 of Hebrews, it is obsolete. We're no longer under this type of worship. The Old Testament worship was changed in the New Covenant, radically changed. Now, there's some similarities, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but radically changed the worship because we're no longer under these major aspects of the Old Testament worship, okay? For instance, the ceremonial and dietary laws. Look at Mark chapter 7, verse 19. This is a very important little verse that Mark snuck in, uh, and I'm really glad he did. Uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees again. You know the people he really didn't like? They were the legalists, right? <laughs> Don't be a legalist. Because that's the guys he's always, you know, speaking out against, isn't it? The Pharisees, okay? So he's talking to them, and they were, you know, he was saying to them, the food that goes into your body, that doesn't cause you to sin. It's what comes out of your heart. That's what causes you to sin. And then he makes this statement, verse 19. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. Right there in the Bible, it says Jesus declared all foods clean. Pork, uh, catfish, lobster. Those were all unclean under the old covenant, okay? And by the way, some people think, oh, but wait a minute, this is in parentheses. Doesn't that mean it's not in, some, in the original manuscripts? No. 
That is absolutely not true, okay? If your Bible has brackets around some passage, that means some of the early manuscripts don't have it in the brackets. Parentheses is something completely different. This is just the use of uh, uh, linguistic help or whatever here, but it's actually in all the manuscripts, okay? It's in every single manuscript of Mark. It says, he declared all foods clean. The reason why they put it in parentheses is because this is Mark interpreting what Jesus was saying about food, okay? But Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, okay? One of the reasons why I don't like red-letter Bibles. Red-letter Bibles, they have the red letters for the words of Jesus. We think that those words are more important than the other words. But the other words are by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he inspired the whole Bible. So, and the Holy Spirit is equal to Jesus, isn't he? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake here. He had him say, thus he declared all foods clean. Therefore, Jesus declared all foods clean. And if somebody says they're not clean, and I'm not talking about for dietary reasons. I'm talking about religious reasons. If someone says they're not clean, they're disagreeing with Jesus because Jesus declared all foods clean. And that's serious. We want to take that with seriousness. Once again, I'm not talking about dietary reasons. Some people are vegetarians or whatever for dietary reasons. But, uh, but here, for religious reasons, he declares all foods clean. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 5. Should be pretty close to the book of Hebrews. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 through 5. He says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are, are seared. Now that sounds pretty, pretty important, doesn't it? You know, as a pastor, I do need to warn you not to listen to teachings of demons. Wouldn't you say? In fact, I think I would be negligent if I didn't warn you about teachings from demons. And this passage is saying there are some teachings of demons, and then he explains a couple of them. Look at verse 3. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, if you have a doctrine that says certain people can't get married, now that doesn't mean some people don't sense the calling of God to be uh, you know, celibate or whatever, but he is saying when you have a doctrine that they can't get married, that's a teaching of demons. Or if you have a doctrine that says you can't eat certain foods, then that's a doctrine of demons according to this. And, and there are different groups within Christianity that have these laws in place because they've been deceived. And we cannot uh, follow that. So Jesus declares all foods 
clean. And we see this, and you can see, look at the other passages as well. We're no longer under the ceremonial or dietary laws. We're no longer under the Sabbath and festival laws. We already saw that in the Colossians passage, and, and then you can look those up later. In other words, a new worship comes with the new covenant. Okay, a new worship. In the Old Testament, the worship was very formal and very ritualistic. Okay, it was, wasn't it? Could you imagine being back then? You know, your worship was to go to Jerusalem, bring an animal offered as a sacrifice, have the blood put on the altar, and you go through this, and there's incense and this and that. It was all very formal and ritualistic. And he's saying, that's all gone. In the new covenant, the worship was very simple, very low in ritual and formality. And that was true of the early church as well. When you study the early church, it wasn't until the medieval church that worship began to become complicated again. It began to become uh, they added all of this ritual and, and so forth, incense and all those other kinds of things. Uh, that's that's moving away from true New Testament worship, the simplicity of worship. Now, there is some things that the Old Covenant worship and the New Covenant worship ma- maintained, okay? That's the worship of God. To ascribe to God his worth, how great and marvelous and wonderful he is, that's true worship. In the Old Covenant, in the in the synagogue, they would gather together, read God's word and explain it. They would sing praises to God. They would pray to God and they would experience fellowship together corporately as God's people on a regular basis. In the new covenant, we see those same things as well. God's people regularly gathering together Uh, It did change from Saturday to Sunday, even in the New Testament, but gathering together to worship God, to sing praises to God, to hear his word preached and explained, to pray to God, to have fellowship. And then the New Testament adds the, uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism as well as a part of the worship. But it's that simplicity of our gathering together. So worship has dramatically changed. Now, God's plan is meticulous and unalterable. He really did want to make sure we got it right. And that's why he ends in verse 5. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So he really does want us to worship him the way he wants us to worship him. Um, All religions are not equal. All worship is not equal. I hear a phrase, some people say, just worship God the way you feel comfortable. You'll never find that in the Bible. It's not about your comfort. It shouldn't even be about you at all. You should be, just forget about you. And you focus on him and his majesty and his glory and his beauty. And you begin ascribing to him and then you enter into his presence and then he changes you and you get all the goosebumps and feelings and and all that stuff and that's great, right? But that's not what it's about. It's about him. 
And so we want to worship God the way he wants to be worshiped. Now, in John 4, 21 through 24, he did say, worship him in spirit and in truth. He actually, well, in fact, let's quickly look at that. John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. He's talking to the Samaritan woman, and and he's, he's already shared with her some things about herself where she realizes he's Messiah. She asks him, are we, you know, because Samaritans, they worshiped at one place and the Jews worshiped at another place. And she wants to know from him, where are we supposed to worship? This mountain or that mountain? And look at his response, verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Now, verse 22 is not very politically correct, is it? I mean, he blasts her. He says, your your religion is a false religion, didn't he? You're worshiping what you don't even know. The Jews have the right God. We're worshiping what we do know. But then he goes on and he shows the change, though, coming. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's no longer about where you worship. It's no longer about that tabernacle on the earth because Jesus has fulfilled all of that. Now it's about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So what we see here is that Jesus, by ascending into heaven, made it possible for us to enter God's presence. And by doing this, he also changed worship as we enter God's presence. And finally, because he is the superior mediator. Verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. He's the mediator, the absolutely essential mediator. We don't dare come into the presence of God except through Jesus Christ. Because as sinners, we'll become toast. But when we put our trust in Christ, when you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you outwardly express that in baptism, the Bible says you're born again, completely forgiven. Now you can enter into the very holy of holies, the very presence of God because of what Christ has done for you as your mediator. Okay, But with Christ, you don't need any other mediator. Right? You don't need someone else, a priest on the earth, to go to be the go-between between you and God. Because of Jesus, you can go right in to the very presence of God. You don't need Mary. Mary's called the the uh, mediatrix, uh, the co-mediatrix, and that's uh, by in some places. No, we don't need any other mediator but Christ. You don't even need me as the pastor, to enter in. You know, we got this thing in churches that we think, you know, if there's a group of people and there's a prayer that needs to be done, you got to get the pastor to do the praying, right? Okay, because the pastor is the professional. 
okay? Don't try this at home. That's wrong, isn't it? You don't, you, if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, if you've been truly born again, you can enter into the very presence of God yourself. Now, and we can together as God's people. No need for any other mediator but Christ. Now, as I said at the beginning, there's a difference between felt needs and real needs. Sometimes we feel that my need is this, whatever it is. I need a spouse. I need a this. I need more money. I need whatever. Okay. There are felt needs, but there are real needs. The real need is, do you see your absolute desperate need for Jesus as your high priest and mediator to God? And then secondly, do you appropriate his provision as mediator? In other words, do you enter God's presence regularly and truly worship him and seek him, both individually as well as corporately when you gather together regularly with God's people? You see, he can meet our felt needs, and those are legitimate but you really want him to meet your real needs. When you come into his presence and you experience the inner transformation, the shackles are released. No more bondages. Exhilarating joy. Deep peace that surpasses all understanding. Power for kingdom service. This is what comes when we enter into his presence. You want some of that? Okay. Then I think the worship team should cut up, come up, okay? And we're going to seek the Lord as we sing to him, enter his presence. Let him take the shackles off. Let him fill you with joy and peace. Let him transform you and empower you for kingdom service as he is the king and we are his subjects. Let's worship. Stand and worship our God.